It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, we'll be talking about critical race theory, and we're going to actually find out what it is. And we're going to talk about this topic, heavily debated in news all around the country. Joined today by Dr. LaShawn Williams. She's a professor of social work at Utah Valley University, who specializes in relational change strategy. You're going to have to explain what that means to me, because I really don't know that right now. And then we have Dr. Tamara Stevenson, who's vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the chief diversity officer at Westminster College, Westminster College in Salt Lake City. Ladies, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for being willing to answer our questions and wade into this very <laughs> non-controversial topic. Looking forward to it. Okay, so I am going to start with you, Dr. Williams. Um, what is critical race theory? A hot topic in the media right now. Um, if you think about it, it's it's a way of looking at things. That's what all theories are. And critical race theory is something that came up in the 70s as legal scholars looked at the civil rights movement's legal gains from Brown versus Board of Education to the Civil Rights Act, Voters Act. And they started to see that uh, progress was stalling. The things that the law was intended to do, they weren't happening. They were either being stalled or they were being rolled back. And they said, well, what's making this happen? And so critical race theory is a critical legal studies lens. It looks at what does the law say it's supposed to do? Is it doing it? And if it's not doing it, how do we make it do what it said it was going to do? So whether it's critical race theory that centers race at the core of the conversation, there's critical feminist theory that focuses feminism and sexism and patriarchy at the core. There's critical queer theory that talks about gender, gender identity, sexuality, sexual orientation at the core. There's ability. So any identity can be a critical insert identity theory. It means if we start with this, with this identity at the core, how do we understand the law as it relates to this marginalized identity? And Dr. Look, Stevenson? Real okay. quick. Uh, you, I mean, you, you're nodding. I mean, that's that's it's a perfect description, an accessible, relatable description. And if you heard what Dr. Williams mentioned, she mentioned specific laws, specific legislation. And legi- another word for legislation is policy. Yes. And policy, these policies were connected to identities or identities that have been structurally marginalized in society. Again, from from the beginning, and these laws were designed to kind of close that gap towards equality. Equity is a different name, different uh, term, and a different part of the conversation. And so I think a relatable uh, uh, pin to put in that description is to think about how policy responds to identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing that I had read was that 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 helped me understand it, because I'll be honest with you, most of the news stories that I was l- trying to read or wade through or li- li- I will I will say listening to it on the radio, being discussed on radio or TV was not helpful. 
um, was that it also sort of um, dissects or helps people understand how racism is institutionalized. And it's not about there, there are people who believe racism is an individual decision and that it, it originates with individual you know, choices. But obviously, my choices not to be a racist is not impacted by whether or not I live in slavery time. You know what I mean? So they, it, that helped me understand that it looks at institu- how racism is institutionalized and that in the purpose of it was to figure out what, why the laws are not functioning correctly. And also, that's how you dismantle it, right? Yeah. Where is it stalled? How do we undo that? And why is it getting stalled? Like yeah. what's happening? Because so like when you said, you know, my choice to not be a racist is yeah. not happening because I'm not living within slavery times. Like even dial that back and think yeah. about who had access to be able to be the lawyer or to be the politician or to be the judge that made the decision about the law that was being argued. If you just look at history, it wasn't white women. It wasn't people of color. Like the access for white women and people of color to even become lawyers is recent. So when you're looking at it, what it ends up being is a very uncomfortable but very honest conversation that white men have been the lawyers, they've been the judges, they've been the folks who have been able to make these decisions and to put these policies into place and then to write policies that help support policies that allow them to continue a system of subordination, unfortunately. But Mm -hmm. that's part of what has built this country. And there's just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's untrue. And that's what this critical race theory conversation is trying to say is we don't want to be uncomfortable with our own history. So let's just ban this conversation because it not until critical race theory were there any conversations of one race being superior to another. However, if kids are already in school learning about the Trail of Tears, learning about enslavement that necessitated Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, then it's already in there. That one race is inherently superior to another. Like, we wouldn't have Manifest Destiny, that, you know, Oregon Trail, if we weren't actually talking about policy. We're already doing it. We just don't call it that. You gave some really good examples. but So I'm wondering, when you talk to people about this, either one of you can take this question, um, what is stopping people from talking about institutional racism? Because to me, that's a more comfortable conversation than you said this or you did this or I have these beliefs and I got to unravel them, right? Because mm-hmm. we all get socialized, like Jason and I talk about this all the time, in the same white supremacist, racist, sexist juices. Like, so I, we, we have to unravel all of that, each of us in our own way. But to me, that's a far more uncomfortable conversation because it's about me. Yeah. But I, I find so much resistance to this idea of institutional racism. Mm. Well, it's the unexamined majority. So what I mean by that is when the world is working for you, it's set up for your success, Mm -hmm. you don't have to think about it. You just got to wake up and breathe. You just wake up and (laughs) la, la, la. Birds singing. Yeah, and you know, and you just walk out out your door if you have a door. (laughs) (laughs) You walk down your porch steps. If you have steps, you open your garage, or unless you have a walk-through garage, right? It's Mm -hmm. set up for you, so you don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the work uh, that Beverly Tatum does around um, um, identity talks about how we have dominant and subordinate identities. And, but we, uh, 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 help me, Dr. LaShawn, we it kind of see ourselves through our subordinate identities. Not mm. that the, we think our identities are subordinate, but that society. This is what we've been taught, and this is kind of how we, it's, it's been baked into our thinking. Well, not just baked into our thinking. It's what's but, most salient yes. to you. So, yeah. like, if, if we were all to say, one of the one of the exercises that Dr. Tatum does that I love, I do it in class all the time. So I have my students, we get an index card, and I say, okay, 
Everybody write down the words, I am, complete the sentence. And so my students will say, I am, and they'll complete the sentence. Women in my class will say, I am a mom, a woman, a daughter, a sister. Men in my class will say, I am a father, sometimes. Or they'll talk about their occupation. And so black students and students closely, I am black. My LGBTQ students will say, I am queer. We always start with the thing that's most salient and what's sometimes most marginalized. And so the idea is, if we're going to talk about how this was institutionalized, it means that something was built so that some folks could walk through the hallway, but I had to figure out what the door was that got me into the hallway because it wasn't built for me. Exactly. You've, you've made it work for you, but it is not for you. Sort of like how I feel every well, time I go to the gym. it wasn't built for you. Every time I go to the gym, the gym is built for a five foot nine hundred sixty pound man, and I got to figure out how to lift weights or do mm-hmm. whatever. It doesn't work for me, but I've made it work for me. Yes, that's what you're talking. Because you have a detriment. goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To a detriment, though, right? Sure. Maybe um, it's also sometimes harming. Yeah. Right? Well, it's yeah. harming to have to navigate that every day and try to be on the same level as your as the white counterparts, your white peers, your white coworkers, mm-hmm. and yet and and despite those barriers, their success, and then the powers that be will want to say, well, look, there's nothing. That you know, one, she did it. Yeah, she did it. Why can't Why you can't do you? it? Why can't you? One example of, of some exceptional person, and then we're all supposed to live up to to that example. I, I always find that just to be maddening. You know, I, I wish I could be LeBron, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we're speaking today about critical race theory with Dr. LaShawn Williams and Dr. Tamara Stevenson. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. And eventually, I, I wanted to wait before, as we explain how this works, before I get into the pol- politics and the news aspect of this particular theory. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Jason Lee, Amy Donaldson, speaking today with Dr. LaShawn Williams, professor of social work at uh, the at Utah, Utah Valley University. I almost said Utah State, forgive me. Utah <laughs> Valley University, too. that's an orum. Uh, she specializes in relational change uh, strategy. And Dr. Tamara Stevenson, vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, not equality, but equity, uh, and the chief diversity officer at Westminster College. Uh, real quick, what is um, relational change strategy? Uh, it is the ability to manage connection in relationships and when there is disconnection to understand that you can survive it, you can come back into connection and transform a relationship. Example, please. Oh, my gosh. No, no examples. That's that's the quickest I could give to you in like five seconds without I mean, it becoming a lecture. Podcast, but yeah, it I'm is. totally interested in this. <laughs> okay, well, I'm I, glad. I'm, uh, I'm going to audit a class. One more thing. 
difference between equity and equality? Equality, everyone gets the same thing. Equity, everyone gets what they need specifically to be successful. Okay. I love that. Okay, now. now. Get school us. Why are you tired of talking about critical race theory and what it is? Right. I feel, well, let me just say, first of all, I had to recognize that, you know, all of these different media outlets that are doing these conversations, they have audiences, right? So the voice is a reason. Audience is an audience that, you know, you have a faithful following, I'm I'm sure, who trust you. So you had to have this conversation. So I appreciate being here, being here with Dr. LaShawn to have this conversation. But overall, I'm really done with this question because it's a distraction. It is a deflection from the real uh, disproportionate outcomes that are occurring, for example, across student populations and uh, graduation rates and health care outcomes, COVID outcomes, right? That is really is what CRT does. It illuminates and reveals these disproportionate uh, outcomes and how race plays, race and racism plays into that. So we, we can, you know, we can dialogue about what CRT is and isn't. That won't change the fact that we need real answers. We need real solutions to why students are not graduating uh, at the same rates, why white students are graduating more than black students are, uh, that Latino students are, and the like. We need to be having conversations to understand why uh, certain populations are, are suffering more through COVID than others. We know some of these answers. The COVID pandemic revealed the already existing inequities we're having here. So you need to that's know why black women die at a higher rate uh, when they have babies. In, right? yeah, mm-hmm. These, are the, rates, these yes. are the kinds of questions mm-hmm. that I, I guess my biggest question is what happens if this legislative push is successful um, and they ban critical race theory from institutions of higher education? They're banning something that actually isn't present. What they're using critical race theory for is a label that allows them to say all of these things are critical race theory, therefore ban all of these things. It's not really banning critical race theory. So when you say that, though, Explain I mean, that. because yeah. policy, as, as you, you uh, Dr. Stevenson talked about making policy, legislation, if they're creating this policy that says they don't want to talk about, uh, they, want, they don't want to teach history that is important to the development of this country that we live in, how is that uh, not addr- – uh, you, you say it's – they're not addressing critical race theory, but they're addressing the components of critical race theory. Right. 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 They're addressing what's been taught in schools for the last 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. And if they're allowed to say, but this thing that I define as critical race theory, I don't want it in the schools, it's not about critical race theory. It's about all the things that I'm worried critical race theory could be that I don't want you to teach in school. Now, mind you, we are in the state of Utah that's about to celebrate a holiday at the end of July – that talks about the law and the legal history of how a specific faith population was treated. If anyone should have an investment in talking about how law affects communities and populations, it should be the people that live here in Utah. Because if we're not going to talk about critical race theory, then we're not going to talk about Pioneer Day. You can't talk about Pioneer Day and say, I don't want to talk about critical race theory. Because the experience of the faith group that was mongrelized and racialized and, and had an extermination order, that was an executive order. That was legal policy that existed to get rid of an entire faith group. Now, if that faith group is now saying we don't want to talk about it, and it's not just the faith group here in Utah, it's the same language. Oklahoma, Idaho, Texas, um, Utah, they're all saying the same thing. We shall not teach that one race is inherently superior to another. This is a coordinated political effort that's happening. So where is the language happening? And what I think is important that we need to kind of name is that 
This is what we expect to see every time there's backlash either about an administration coming in or an administration leaving. And what we're seeing is the backlash that comes from that. We are trying to act as if somehow or another this conversation is not connected to January 6, 2021. It is. It is. There is there is a rush and there is a desire and there is a deep there's a deep psychological unsafeness that's happening that's pushing this fear to say if we start telling this truth and not the one that we've always been told is true. It's the 1619 project versus the 1776 project. Like why can't you have both? Why do you have to negate one in order to pro- pro- to promote another unless you understand that the truth is actually in the 1619 project? Like what is there to hide? Mm-hmm. Banning critical race theory is an admission that racism is real. Because if you talk about it, then somebody has to be accountable for it. And so if we ban it, then we don't have to talk about it. Well, then don't, if it's not real, what are you worried about? It's such hypocrisy, though, when you think about the recent passage of the Juneteenth uh, holiday mm-hmm. bill, right? And so now, you know, there's this federal, new, newest federal holiday that students will get out of school, but they can't talk about why. Why? <laughs> they're, they're, they're not why, school why it had to exist in the first place, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. I, um, well, okay, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because uh, I always feel like policymakers make decisions on what is easy for them and what looks good for them. Yes. And I believe, uh, and I have to uh, thank uh, uh, Darlene McDonald and Dr. Paul White for kind of waking me up to this. But actually, that's not true. Uh, a friend of mine in California, uh, Shelley Poole, uh, made this point to me. They had started out talking about Election Day. And they got off of that to go to Juneteenth. Because now people say, well, look, we worked together and we gave you something. Mm-hmm. So now... When we don't do this other thing that is far more important and will impact you at a greater, uh, I mean, just enormously different, exponentially uh, greater uh, in a greater fashion, you won't say anything about it. We're going to keep creating these laws that make it harder and harder for you to vote. And instead of giving you a day when everybody can just go and do it, when they're legally uh, allowed to go do it. We're just going to ignore that. But we gave you Juneteenth. We gave you Juneteenth. You can't vote on Juneteenth. You, you, you can't complain you. about we it. Gave it. We gave you. you. What, what more do you well, want? To what me, more do you want? To me, that whole controversy was sort of like the black friend um, thing. You know, when you when you have an issue and you're like, but I can't be racist. I have a black friend. Yeah. A black friend. A. Uh, we can't be racist country. We have Juneteenth. Right. <laughs> That's exactly. how I feel about <laughs> it. The irony of it all, though. The That's complete something. irony of it all. And, and so to your point about election and and going to Juneteenth, can we just also put a pin in what's still waiting to be voted on in in Congress, which is the George Floyd policing bill and the anti-lynching bill, which actually failed in in Congress last year? Yeah. So, well, right. and I'm sure their answer is, of course, a lynch, a murder is illegal. Why do we need a law against it? Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. Well, I mean, that's, I I'm just saying that that would be their argument against. It. I ain't saying. I, I, look. <laughs> I, I could go on for well, days and hours. Let me let me just say yeah. there there because fe- there needs to be a federal backup to if we if I've learned anything in the last four years it's that there has to be. I used to not care what the feds passed for criminal laws. Mm-hmm. Now I do mm-hmm. because sometimes that's the only law that can be prosecuted. Right, because we know the states. I mean, because it all starts locally, right? Because the prosecutors have too much. That's power. right. They have too much power, and then when when they. <laughs> When they fail, we want something that's redundant that allows you to, to have a remedy. It's it's the reason we have a Supreme Court, right? You because you lose your life because of your race, and right. they say, "Oh well, you know, this was self defense because they're the local sheriff, and that there is a backup, and that's why we need the lynching law. We need it 
we needed it. When they were doing the lynching, right? Yeah. But yeah, we mm-hmm. needed it a long time ago. We, the fact that we don't have it now, that anybody could vote against that, is just mind-boggling to me. When we come back, I'm going to do something I know you guys are probably not going to love as much as I do. But, you know, because we had this discussion, right? There are people who want to, uh, they use critical race theory as a way to demonize what we know would be equity and equality for for more people. And they try to figure out a way to, uh, you know, incense their base to vote against it and, and, and oppose it, despite the fact that it would actually benefit them if they just went along with it. I'm going to continue this discussion. We have, we're here today with Dr. Tamara Stevenson and Dr. LaShawn Williams. We're talking about critical race theory and, you know, what, the discussion that's going on across our country and the impact of having these discussions. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Back with the Loudmouth Project, Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason, Amy Donaldson, Jason Lee, speaking today with Dr. LaShawn Williams, a professor of social work at Utah Valley University, and Dr. Tamara Stevenson, who's vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and chief diversity officer at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. And uh, Dr. Stevenson, okay, so we we talk a little bit about critical race theory and how you're kind of tired of talking about that. However, uh, you brought up a point kind of off, offline. It's this is. Shiny keys, essentially, uh, what is what's used by policymakers to uh, to have these kinds of discussions. Can you kind of expound on that? First of all, let me say I'm, I'm not tired of talking about critical race theory. It is the theory that saved my life, quite honestly, when um, I was in graduate school and was figuring out what I want. I knew what I wanted to study, but I needed a framework to help me explain society the way that I was experiencing it and observing it in this in this body earth suit as a black woman. And when I learned about critical race theory and how it talks about racism being an ordinary, uh, uh, everyday part of our society in such a sense that we don't even necessarily feel it, but we there are material consequences to it. It was just the aha moment for me. So I, I can talk about it all day, but I'd rather talk about it with people who are willing to have well-informed conversations about it. The shiny key metaphor of we'll do this, which will distract you from, again, as you also mentioned earlier, how there are some deep uh, uh, necessary policy changes that could make a difference uh, for uh, society as well, but those are just still hanging in the balance. And then, and and then, if we inquire about it, we get gaslighted. Well, well, we did that for you. Why isn't that enough? When some of us readily recognize that a day off doesn't matter if we could possibly be lynched, despite the fact that murder is illegal, or if you can't despite vote, despite the fact if you can't vote, despite the fact that a police officer can can put a knee on your neck. On video for nine minutes and 29 seconds, I think, was the final result. And that there has to be an entire trial and still a debate on whether or not that 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 person should be held accountable for their actions. So it's it's a bait and switch in a way, too. Right. So uh, but there are those of us who are kind of recognizing that. Thank you. And yes, there's still more work to do. Right. And so uh, Amy, I guess I want to know why the uneducated or. The politically motivated. I love the uneducated. Get to no in this case because I'm, I'm the uninformed or misinformed or intentionally misinformed or t- intentionally misleading. 
but the emotional, why do they get to drive the debate? Like, why can't, what could we do to change this dynamic? Because I feel like they get the first punch and then we're all reacting to bad information and bad intention. And sure. So what, and I won't be too long on this. Um, what I understand is, at least locally, what happened in Utah that this uh, uh, issue became an issue in Utah was that uh, people reached out to their legislators and said, this thing is happening. We don't want it to happen. And just just inundated their representatives uh, to demand some action on it. And others just, you know, didn't engage in the political process that way. And the next thing it was like, aha, it's here. So... They, in part, utilized their civic duty, their civic uh, uh, access, and got some movement and got built enough momentum to be If I call and say, I'm afraid of flying rats, I'm afraid of, and I get all my (laughs) friends to do it, and it's not true, why can't the legislators say, this is not a problem? Because they don't know. Because what if, I mean, on the off chance that maybe there is a flying rat, they kind of have to investigate and if you're threatening that you're going to call my my donors or my sponsors and tell them to not sponsor or, or support me because I won't listen to you about the flying rats in your backyard I care about that uh, what like the, putting my therapist hat on like what you're seeing is a, is a communal fight or flight response people know that if they act as if they are scared to death of this thing happening and not happening to us as adults but to our kids can you imagine? They're going to indoctrinate our children. They're going to make them hate people. This is so awful, and we've got to save the kids. Then everyone's like, oh, my gosh, we've got to save the kids. What's happening? They, I knew it. They were doing this thing, and they, they just start creating a reality. And so because you have maybe some legislators or you maybe have some school administrators who are like, we just want the calls to stop. Just what do we need to do? What do we need to say to make it stop? I, I don't know if you're doing it or not, but it's offending them, and they keep calling. They keep calling. They keep calling. Like, if you... Keep calling and, and berating and inundating someone. They're going to listen to you. Squeaky wheels get the grease. And these are squeaky wheels who are coming from a place of, of fight or flight at this moment. This isn't rational reasoned thinking. This is if I, I'm scared. So how do you calm the, the fight or flight response? It's a stress response. Hmm, interesting. So it, it, it's just um, you're, you're creating fear Yes. so that people – uh, will respond, react, and hopefully <laughs> do what you want them to do is, you know, buy into your your false narrative. Yeah, and not even recognizing that it actually may do more damage mm-hmm. than good at this point. Like vote against your own interests. Voting against your own interests. Do they yeah. don't really see it as their? Do they real? Do they really see it as as their as their interest? Um, and can we unpack that a little bit more? I know, right? Yeah. I just. <laughs> The the notion is that if it's not going to cost me anything, because mm-hmm. I don't see this costing me anything right now. Sure. So, but if it will cost you, and I'll feel better because mm-hmm. you're impacted and I'm not, then I'm going to do it. If there's a benefit in there for me, but it costs you something, it doesn't cost me anything. It's not costing these parents anything. But it will make their children less well informed, right? No, no. How about this? It, it does cost, and what it costs is people will die. At higher rates in our medical system, uh, we 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 just went through COVID, and every day I looked at those stats, and it made certain people because of their genetics and because of their access to the healthcare system, and and because of the re- the things we're looking at now, we're critically looking at why is this happening? Because of the jobs they did, because of a, a whole myriad of uh, cultural uh, stuff. 
they die, they got sicker, they got worse care, and they died at higher rates. Uh, it, it, it matters because we are less safe. And I, I don't want to live in a place where we see a problem and we can't figure out why that how that problem gets solved. But so to, to, this, you okay, I do okay. real quick, real quick. <laughs> Just a note on language. Yeah. As you were telling yeah. the story, yeah. it was they, 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 yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah. Yeah. and we, we, we. Okay. So if we, we, we are okay with they, they, they dying, it's not we're dying. Yeah. They're dying. Yeah. And if anything in my mind, my history, or my belief says that it's okay for them to die as long as it's not me, that's why I'm going to go and throw a party in Provo for a thousand people against the mask mandate because it's going to affect them. Somebody else. Not me. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean that's and that's a good point. I to, yeah. to the point too of not thinking about everybody else, but when you're raising up your children in a particular faith tradition, thought tradition, cultural tradition, anything that would disrupt that even a tiny tiny bit, because babies are curious, babies are inquisitive. Traditional public schooling squeezes that out of them, but you <laughs> yeah, guys. Hopefully, yeah. you got you got some people who are like recognizing that children ask questions. So if you train them early enough to not ask, mm-hmm. right now you've built this this structure around them, and so they're hearing something remote about weight. Skin color makes a difference in how people access can access policy and resources. Mm-hmm. Well, why does that happen, mommy? And this is the thing. We act as if kids don't understand fairness, but anybody who has been in a room with a three-year-old and two cookies has understood that if you got the bigger cookie than I got, I am talking about that and that is not fair. At three, kids recognize this. Now, here's the beautiful piece about what we could be doing is if we start talking to our kids and we tell them the story of America and we want it to be this wonderful, big, gorgeous, beautiful, inclusive story. When the kid comes home and says, you know, mommy or daddy, is it true that this happened? And are we doing anything? Are we still doing that or are we better? That's what we need to get to. And as parents or teachers or folks that have kids in our lives, like, you know what, baby, listen, this law right here and this Juneteenth holiday, this is what makes us better because we're acknowledging this part of our history. Because it wasn't fair that we had this war and that slavery ended, but they didn't know about it. That wasn't fair. So with Juneteenth, this is one way that we say, okay, here's what's fair and here's what it looks like. Don't actually go read the Juneteenth Declaration. Don't actually go read it because then that is all gone. But parents and people that are in children's lives need to be able to tell the kids, you know what? There was a time when we were not doing things that were fair, but we're trying to get better. And here's an example. And this is why... Mommy comes to your classroom. This is why auntie goes to your fundraiser. This is why we send all these things up because we're trying to get better. That needs to be an important conversation that I think we're having with kids because to assume that they don't understand and that they can't get the concept of fair is an insult to their intelligence and it's an insult to how we're teaching and raising kids. Does that make sense? It yeah. does. Okay, but He's before, gonna stop I, me. I'm going to stop you okay. because uh, we got to come back. When we come back, we'll continue this wonderful discussion. I love big brain women. I just want to say that. <laughs> we'll be back. You're listening to Voices of Reason. We are back. Voices of Reason. Amy Donaldson, Jason Lee. And we're talking today about critical race theory. And actually, we've kind of gotten beyond that because critical race theory is just one part of... an. Much larger discussion in the way our country 
handles policy and just discusses its history and and the way our children essentially should learn and how we all should uh, learn different things. But I also agree with what uh, Dr. Tamara Stevenson and Dr. LaShawn Williams has been have been talking to us about is that we have to be cognizant of the way people who are trying to shape this conversation in a way that benefits them to the detriment of others who don't support their way of thinking. And that's kind of where we were going from with this. Now, yeah. Amy, you mentioned that part of uh, – so Yeah, when Jay- I-, I wanted to confess that when Jason said to me, I want to talk about critical race theory, I – he couldn't see me because I was at my house. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I don't want to do this. And I don't want to do it because I feel like that it's driven by politics. And it's I, I believe the shiny keys thing. I think it's an effort to distract and scare people. And I was like, I don't want to give them one second of this energy because there are things that we really need to be working on, starting with our healthcare system. And then Jason knows I was, you know, immigration will send me right over the edge. But I, in this conversation, I have realized my own privilege. The reason I cannot engage and not worry about it and not read any more stories about it is because it doesn't impact my life. It isn't something that's going to cost me my life if I go to the hospital because I don't have, I'm not, I, you know, I am in the, statist- the statistics that get care that are listened to that are believed when they say they're in pain and they get what they need i have health insurance i have a door on my house (laughs) and we talk but this conversation is really like even just the language thing that if you ever when you think of things as that's this problem that i care about but it's not my problem Mm -hmm. and i do think absolutely if i've learned anything in the last four years of doing the show it is if it isn't our problem it's not changing because yeah. there's nothing – the things I care about that I feel that I want people to, you know, worry about, like sexual harassment, you know, my husband, he doesn't know. He doesn't have that experience. I want him to feel it and, and see it and care about it even when he's not with me, not just in this moment. And I so I guess I would say if people are – if ignorant, angry, irrational people are inundating legislators with phone calls, then people who – this is not impacting, but who care about this problem and who care that we get laws that we don't need that are going to be to the detriment of our kids. If you care at all about having a society where everyone just has opportunity and, and feels safe. And, you know, I go back to our redlining mm-hmm. conversation where Jason was blown away by all the advantages white people have. And he's just he at one point looked at me. He's like, I you guys got all kinds of. <laughs> All the breaks. all kinds of angles covered, and we do. And I and I just think, really, if you really care, then you need to be. I need to start writing and calling and being noisy about it and having these conversations. It's exhausting, but you know what? Critical. That is it. That is it. So, do you all know the name Bill Moore? He's one of my favorite people to talk about. Bill do you know Moore. Bill Moore? Mm-hmm. He's a United States Post Service man back in the sixties. Okay, no. Um, his story as a, as a postal man from Mississippi. He believed that white supremacy was wrong. And so as a white man, he decided he was going to walk from Mississippi to Washington, D.C. to protest segregation and Jim Crow. He had, like, you know, the sandwich board signs and everything. And he was going to make his one man walk because white supremacy and racism was wrong. He was killed by the Klan in Alabama. 
because so he, he didn't stood make it up. very far at all. He didn't make it far at all, and he was counseled by NAACP, SCLC. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's not going to go well. But white people and entitlement and that privilege, I, I can go Nobody's do it. Nobody's ever told no me no. one's told me no, right? And yeah. so, you know, you have these martyrs for the cause. And with these conversations about critical race theory, a lot of white folk are like, well, we need to elevate black voices. We need to elevate. And I'm like, could you just, I would like my voice to not have to be elevated in this moment because I am tired. What I need is for white people to fight against this as if no black people even exist in the state of Utah. Fight against it because it's wrong, not because you're trying to help black people. That's nice. But if we weren't around, would you fight for it? Like, I think about the areas where I have privilege. Would you privilege. fight for knowing that it's detrimental to our society? That's the question. That's it. Right, right, and that right. should be the only question. But there's so many of these conversations about we want to get it right, want to be a good ally, want to elevate black voices. And, and that's good. Yes, you should do that. However, if you outnumber me 10 to 1, 20 to 1, <laughs> if it's your people who are the ones that are calling and inundating your legislators, I need you to match their energy. Ain't not, there ain't enough of me and Tamara and black folk in the state of Utah to match the energy of angry white racist people. But they're all related to y'all. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you all see yes. them at July 4th. We, we spoke about Rolodexes. They're in my Rolodex. They're in your yes. Rolodex. Yes. And, this, yeah. and, and, you know, this, this, the work of racial equality it is a stamina that you have to build. It's baked into me. Yeah. I mm-hmm. come from people who have baked this into me. There is not going to be a day that I wake up and go to sleep where I'm not thinking about it. But my life depends on it. For my friends who are not and they're trying to figure out what to do, there's an anxiety associated with that because we all want to do the right thing. Do like Bill Moore. Do like John Brown and his eight sons who came together because this thing is wrong is why I fought for it and why I fought against it because it's wrong. Whether I knew any black people or I was trying to help them or not, this thing is wrong. And until this thing is obliterated, my work doesn't stop. And so it's about building that stamina. You can't build muscle without working it out. And yes, it is exhausting. Yeah. I'm not asking you to do reps until you fail, but I'm asking you to just come on. We got to get the reps in. I got to go. Yeah. I got to do ten push-ups. I need you to do twenty, just because you got to work a little bit harder than me, right? But like that's kind of yeah. how we have to approach yeah. it. And you've yeah. got to understand that. I have an interest in it, whether it affects me or not. There are areas in my life where I have privilege in sexual orientation, religion, national identity, whatever it might be. It's not going to bother me one bit if somebody else that doesn't have that privilege gets a benefit. I have privilege whether I use it or not. I don't ever lose it. Yeah. So what on earth is going to happen if I extend it to somebody else that's going to make their life easier and I don't have to do anything? Say that again. You know? <laughs> Say that again. It's going to make their life easier and I don't have to do anything. I just get it to wake up. Nothing. It costs it you nothing. Costs it costs me nothing. nothing. Yeah. And that's what, that is what Derek Bell and a lot of the folks in Critical Race Theory talk about is like, if it wasn't going to cost white folk anything, okay, we'll do it. Like he says, when whites perceive that it will be profitable or at least cost-free to serve, hire, admit, or otherwise deal with blacks on a non-discriminatory basis, they do so. When they fear, accurately or not, that there may be a loss or an inconvenience or an upset to themselves or other whites, discriminatory conduct usually follows. And let me add something for my people in my Rolodex. One minute. It doesn't mean you didn't earn what you have if you admit you have privilege. Amen. It, it, you, you, all your bootstraps, all those stories, all they're there. still just as valid. That's right. You lose nothing. It costs, I, I, That's the thing that everybody keeps coming back to, but it's not my fault. I'm not saying it's your fault. It's not my fault either. Like I said, we're all baked into the same yes. racist pie. Yes. But it is your job to figure out how to fix it. And your bootstraps don't fit my feet. Even if you wanted to give me your boots, you can't. 
They are made for your feet. Mm-hmm. What you got to do is help me get the kind that fit my feet. Keep yours. Mm-hmm. Just help me get some. That's all I need. I don't it's need you to give me your shoes. It's people. not a zero-sum game, people. It's not zero-sum. It has never it been. And the greatest thing about been. living in what we whites like to say is the greatest country in the world is that there is this potential that we are not even beginning to live up to. Amen. So if yeah. you believe in that, if you really believe in that, then you'll know there will be enough if everybody brings their best, there's still enough for you. Yeah. Everybody just gets better. Rising tide lifts, lifts all boats. All ships. You got so, it. So, Dr. Tamara Stevenson, <laughs> Dr. LaShawn Williams, Amy, I uh, I love big brain women. <laughs> and that that is not a joke. That is, that is not hyperbole. It's true. <laughs> Thank you so much for having this wonderful conversation. Join us in next... Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or any other place where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, when you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.